Well, Gordon and I were talking this week about the strange and uniquely modern phenomenon that is church marketing. Prior to about 70 years ago, the idea of marketing a church was largely unheard of. They just didn't do such a thing. One's choice of churches was driven by two factors, geographical location and theological conviction. In other words, if you were a Baptist living in a certain town, you went to the local Baptist church. And if you were a Presbyterian, you went to the Presbyterian church, and a Methodist to the Methodist church, and so on. Now the picture is obviously a lot more nuanced than that, but in general, those two factors were determinative in where you worship. Try to imagine, if you will, Jonathan Edwards looking over advertising proofs and trying to decide which one to use for the mass mail-out. Or Martin Luther sitting for makeup in preparation for shooting his church's promotional video. After World War II, however, American culture experienced a, a seismic shift. The unprecedented prosperity which many Americans attained in the post-war decades led to the emergence of what has become known as the American consumerist culture. In other words, where once there was only one place in town to buy groceries, now suddenly there were three, and each store was competing against the others for a share of the market. And the same was true for restaurants and car dealerships and clothing stores, everything. Churches, too, were affected by the rise of the consumer culture. Americans who had grown up accustomed to having businesses compete for their patronage naturally extended this consumerist mentality to their choice of churches. Whether consciously or not, they began to expect churches to compete for their quote-unquote business by catering to their preferences. No longer, in other words, are geographical location and theological conviction the dominant choice or the dominant factors in one's choice of church. Now, it's who has the best preaching or who has the best worship or who has the best children's programs or who has the best facilities or who offers the best coffee or whatever it may be. New churches tend to pop up everywhere, many in the same geographical area, having basically the same theological convictions and all competing against one another for a share in the market. Then if you throw in this even more recent phenomenon of the big, big box stores like Walmart and Target and James River Church, then the picture gets even more complicated. Now, I would be the first to admit that this is a cynical perspective, and believe it or not, I am not a traditionalist who enjoys spitting in the face of the winds of change. But the culture is what it is, and we are called to be faithful in the midst of it. Not only faithful to the truths of the gospel, but faithful to proclaim those truths to this consumerist culture in which we find ourselves. I mean, we, we as a church could shake our fist all we want about the consumerist culture and its destructive effects upon the church, but we have to learn to navigate it, and we must learn to reach it. That's why I look at church marketing as something of a necessary evil. I don't like doing it, but I understand why it's important. We need to let people know who we are 
We want them to know that we, we want them to come and we want them to know that we have something to offer them when they do. But at the same time, I remain skeptical about the ultimate effectiveness of church marketing. Don't get me wrong. I believe that we need to do everything we can and that everything that we do needs to be done with excellence in order that we may represent Christ and his church in the best way possible. If we're going to do marketing, we need to do it well. I just don't want us as a church to confuse marketing with evangelism. They're not the same thing. I don't want us to ever think that the evangelistic effectiveness of this church depends upon the quality of our website or the extent of our social media footprint or the graphic that we choose for a mail-out. To build a church upon personal preference or mass appeal is to build it upon sand. There is one irresistible element which will cause a community and a culture to stand up and take notice of a church, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in the transformed lives of its members. When the culture sees a people changed such that they become loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled, in a word, holy, that is what grabs their attention. When a church knows the power of the Spirit, both in their lives and in their worship gatherings, they will not have to market themselves. People can ignore a mass mail-out. They do it all the time. Most of them end up in the trash. But people cannot ignore a life transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is arguing that such a life is not only available to the Christian, it is normative for the Christian. He's saying that such a life, a holy life filled with those fruits of transforming grace, is the inevitable result of justifying faith. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul raised a common objection to the gospel by asking whether the grace of the gospel is a license to sin. If justification is not a reward given by works to those who earn it, but rather is a gift given by grace to those who do not deserve it, then what motivation is there for righteousness? Why not just continue in sin if there is an ever-sufficient supply of grace to cover it? Paul's answer in verses 2 to 11 is that justification is not an isolated verdict which God bestows indiscriminately, but rather is the result of being united to Christ in his death and resurrection. When we are united to Christ through faith, which is signified and sealed in baptism, we not only receive the benefits of his atoning death and of his justifying righteousness, we receive his resurrection life. Because of our union with Christ, we are not only justified, we are raised, verse 4, to walk in a new way of life, a life that he says is dead to sin and is alive to God in Christ Jesus, verse 11. Justification, that is God's 
declaration that we are acceptable in His sight for the blood and the righteousness of Christ is inseparable from sanctification. That is, the process of being transformed from the inside out into righteous people. You cannot have one without the other. Now, this doesn't mean that we are passive in the process of sanctification, that we just sit back and and wait for God to make us holy. Sanctification is a work of God's grace that occurs in and through our active pursuit of righteousness. So Paul follows up all of the indicatives of verses 2 through 11 with the imperatives of verses 12 and 13. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now last week I summarized the relationship between verses 2 to 11 and verses 12 and 13 like this. You are dead to sin and alive to God. If you are a baptized believer in Christ, that's you. You are, right now, dead to sin and alive to God. There's the indicative, the statement of what is. Now act like it. There's the imperative, the statement of what ought to be. But Paul doesn't stop there. He returns right back to the indicative in verse 14, assuring us of our victory over sin and over the ultimate triumph of holiness in our lives. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Being under law is synonymous with being in Adam, from Romans chapter 5. When we were still in Adam, God related to us as, as under law. Okay, Obey, and you will live. Disobey, and you will surely die. But because you and I inherited from Adam both his guilt and a nature which is enslaved to sin, all we could receive from the law was condemnation. But through faith, signified and sealed in baptism, you are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. The old you in Adam died with Christ on the cross, and a new you was raised to new life. Now God relates to you in a totally different way because you're under a totally different covenant. Now he relates to you no longer as under law, the covenant of law, but as under grace, for you are under the covenant of grace in Christ. Christ, your representative, fulfilled the law in your place. Now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Not only are you dead to sin, you are dead to the law. But this raises all manner of questions once again, doesn't it? In fact, it raises the same objection which Paul faced down in the previous passage. To the legalist, that is to the one who thinks that righteousness comes by working, by by keeping the law, by earning God's favor, what Paul says in verse 14 makes no sense. He may have well said that 
jumping in a lake makes you dry, or standing next to a fire makes you cold? How could being free from the law set you free from sin? If you want people to be good, so says the legalist, tell them what to do and what not to do, and issue them promises of reward for doing what is right and threats of punishment for doing what is wrong. Freedom from the law will have the opposite effect, giving sin more dominion over the sinner. So says the legalist. To tell someone they are no longer under the law, that they are no longer constrained by a system of commands and prohibitions, nor motivated by promises of rewards or threats of punishment, is to hand them a license to sin. Right? Wrong says Paul. And that's what verses 15 to 23 are all about. In verse 15, he raises the objection that he inevitably heard once again whenever he proclaimed this gospel. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. God forbid, he says. Paul reacts with the same abhorrence as he did with the objection in verse 15. One, the very suggestion that freedom from the law entails a freedom to sin is appalling to the apostle. The question is, why? That's the question Paul answers in two ways in verses 16 to 19. First, Paul asserts that there is no such thing as absolute human freedom. There is no such thing as human autonomy. Autonomy literally means free from the law. There's no such thing as a human being who is absolutely free from all law. Only God is absolutely free, for only God is self-existent, independent, the I am. We are creatures, and as such, we are always dependent upon God for life and breath and everything. Therefore, in a sense, we are always slaves to something. Either we are slaves of God or we are slaves of sin given over by God to sin's self-destructive reign. This, I think, is the force of verse 16. Do you know, do you not know, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. It is, in fact, the promise of autonomy, independence from God, that led to the sin of Adam and the fall of man in the first place. Satan's hissing lie to Eve back in the garden, right? You surely will not die, for God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That was a promise of autonomy. That was a promise of independence, a promise of supposed freedom from God's rules and restrictions and his killjoy patriarchal ways. More on that in just a moment. But was it true? No, it was not. It was a false promise because we are not God and we can never be God. Only God is God. 
Only God is absolutely free and independent. We are creatures. We are always slaves of something. Either we will be slaves to God the way we were created to be, or he will hand us over to become slaves of sin. The one leads to death. The other leads to righteousness and life. That's the choice that lies before every one of us. Slaves of sin or slaves of God. There is no mythical third alternative where we are, in the words of W.E. Henley, the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. Moment by moment, we are involved in some form of obedience. There is no moment whenever we are truly autonomous and absolutely free. We are either in any given moment obeying God or obeying sin. The one to whom we present ourselves habitually and continuously, is our true master. So the first reason why freedom from the law does not entail freedom to sin is because freedom from the law is not an absolute freedom. As if we were suddenly free to do whatever we please, as if suddenly we become our own lawmakers, as if suddenly we become our own gods, a law unto ourselves. There is one God and one God only. To be freed from the law of sin and death is to be enslaved to God. That's reason number one. The second reason Paul gives as to why freedom from the law is not a license to sin, is because in being freed from the law of sin and death, we have become under, or we have come under the new law, the law of Christ. Look at verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, before we unpack those verses, I want you to turn over one book, one book to the right in the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20, where Paul uses this language of the law of Christ. And we're going to see what he means by it. Okay? Paul's the same author that wrote 1 Corinthians as he wrote Romans. And so we're going to test what he means in one book by comparing it with what he says in another book. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Right. So note there, Paul says he's free from the law. In some sense, that I might bring those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And then he clarifies, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. Now, in that passage, Paul's using the word law in a number of different ways, and it is sometimes confusing to try to discern which usage he intends. All I want you to notice this morning about these verses is that Paul affirms, number one, in some sense, he's not under the law. Number two, neither is he outside the law of God. Rather, number three, he is under the law of Christ. 
In other words, Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians 9.20 the same thing he affirms in Romans 6.14, namely that he and we who have been baptized by faith into Christ are not under law but under grace. He means the same thing. But in the very next verse, he clarifies that he does not by this mean that he is not under any law whatsoever. He is still under the law of God. Rather, he is under a new law, what he now calls the law of Christ. Now go back to Romans 6.17 and let's read it against that background. Paul thanks God that though the Roman Christians were once slaves of sin and under the law of sin and death, he calls it the law of sin and death because, according to Paul in Romans, the only effect which the law can have upon sinners is to reveal their sin, 3.20, awaken their sin, 7.9, increase their sin, 5.20, and pronounce judgment upon their sin, 319. That's why he calls it the law of sin and death. He's talking about the commandments of God, the moral law. They have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. Now I want you to focus on two phrases in verse 17 which explain what he means by a new law or the law of Christ. And we're going to draw out from those two phrases four truths. Number one, notice that Paul says they were committed to a standard of teaching. Literally a form or a pattern of teaching. The Greek word there originally meant an impression. It's the word tupos, from which we get the word type. And it meant an impression made by a blow, like the keys of a typewriter which strike the page and they leave an ink impression which perfectly corresponds to the key. There was, according to Paul, a standard or form or pattern or type of doctrinal and ethical instruction even before there was a a canonized New Testament. Before the New Testament was written, the church had a standard of teaching. People who were baptized into Christ, in other words, were not permitted in the absence of a New Testament to just believe or behave any way they wanted. They were committed to a particular set of truths and a particular way of life that had been stamped upon the church. In time, this standard of teaching became the inscripturated New Testament, which we have today, and is still our standard of teaching to which we are committed. So freedom from the law is not a freedom to believe anything you want and behave any way you want. When you were set free from the law, you were handed over, delivered over to a standard of teaching that determines what you believe and how you live. Number two, notice they were committed to this standard of teaching. Literally, they were delivered over. They were handed over to it. By whom? By Christ. When he freed us From our slavery to the law of sin and death, he handed us over to a new law, a standard of teaching that tells us what truth is and how we ought to live. 
Douglas Moo writes, the verb handed over might connote the transfer of a slave from one master to another, an image entirely appropriate to this paragraph. So in other words, when we were freed from the law, it's not like we were set free to absolute autonomy, to just go anywhere we want, do anything we want, be anything we want, believe anything we want. Rather, when we were freed from our slavery to sin and the law, we were transferred over, handed over, delivered over, committed to another kind of slavery, which Paul says is a slavery to God and to his standard of teaching. Third, notice that they became obedient to this standard of teaching, which highlights that this standard of teaching is not just a set of doctrinal truths, it's also a set of ethical commands to obey. This is precisely why Paul says that the goal of his apostleship is the obedience of faith, Romans 1.6. Becoming a Christian is not merely believing certain truths about Jesus, it's also submitting yourself to a particular way of life. You become a follower of Jesus. You cannot claim to be a follower of Christ and ignore or refuse to obey his word. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Finally, Notice that they obeyed this standard of teaching, not out of compulsion, not begrudgingly, but Paul says, from the heart. These might be the most important words in the chapter because they show us the ultimate reason why continuing in sin, that grace may abound, or sinning because we're not under law but under grace. In other words, using the gospel as a license to sin is inconceivable when it comes to genuinely baptized believers. Why? Simply put, because their hearts have been changed. Now, don't get me wrong. Baptized unbelievers turn the grace of God into licentiousness all the time because they haven't really received the grace of God and they haven't really experienced a change of heart. We know them by their fruits. But those who have experienced such a change, Jesus calls it being born again, will find the suggestions stated in verses 1 and verse 15 just as appalling as Paul does. A couple of weeks ago, Kurt pointed you to the great promise of the new covenant found in Ezekiel 36, the new covenant which Jesus came to inaugurate. There, 500 years before Jesus' birth, God promised, I will give to them, my people, I will give to them a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a heart that feels love for God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That is exactly what Paul says happened to the Roman Christians in verse 17 when they became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. In verse 18 then, Paul summarizes what he's just said in verse 17. Though they once were slaves of sin, 17a, they have been set free from sin, 18a. 
They then became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed, 17b, thus becoming slaves of righteousness, 18b. Now again, take note that Paul does not conceive of freedom in terms of human autonomy. Being set free from sin for Paul necessarily means becoming a slave of righteousness. But to Paul, becoming a slave of righteousness, that is a slave of God, is in fact freedom. It's freedom to be what God created you to be. So the second reason why freedom from the law is not a license to sin is because those who are free from the law of sin and death have come under a new law, that is the law of Christ. They were committed to a standard of teaching to which they became obedient from the heart. They are slaves of righteousness, and slaves of righteousness do not continue in unrepentant sin. You know what a slave of righteousness does when they hear someone say, you mean God just forgives us no matter what we do just by believing in him? And we say, yeah, that's the good news of the gospel. You mean, so we can just do anything we want and, and God will forgive us. You know, you know what a slave of righteousness says? Gross. Why would you do that? Why would you want to do that? God forbid, they would say. Is that what you say? When you think about the gospel and, and you just bask in the free grace of God, just freely poured out, not by works, not by merit, not by effort, not by striving, just by believing, and you are in awe of the goodness and the grace of God, and you hear something like, so now you can go do whatever you want. What is your reaction? You know the reaction of those who are born again? God forbid. In verse 19, Paul recognizes a problem with the language he's been using. He has used the same word. Greek word doulos, it means slave or bondservant. He's used the same word to describe our relationship to sin prior to conversion as he has to describe our relationship to God after conversion. Now, on the one hand, that's exactly what he wants to convey. He wants us to know that the same absolute unquestioning obedience to which a slave owes his master, which your old man rendered to sin, is the very same obedience which we must now render to God. So Paul's not backing off of nor apologizing for using the word slave to describe our relationship to God. On the other hand... Slavery to God has a completely different feel than does slavery to sin. And Paul's not quite easy with it. Sin, and I want you to notice that Paul is personifying sin. You could just as easily insert the word Satan into these verses. Sin is a wicked and hateful master who uses you to get what he wants. And then he throws you away whenever he's finished. God is a kind and loving master who aligns your good with his glory. He doesn't use you to get what he wants. Rather, he graciously incorporates you into his great cosmic objective to spread his glory throughout all creation in such a way that you find your greatest joy in his greatest glory. 
It is this limitation of the slavery imagery that calls forth this almost parenthetical explanation in verse 19 and the contrast between our slavery to sin and our slavery to God in verses 20 to 23. Look at verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So Paul explains that he's using the slave imagery in order to help us understand something about the nature of our relationship to God. With our finite understanding, we can't rightly comprehend the things of God. And Paul knows this, so he speaks by way of analogies. But all analogies, if they're pushed too far, break down, and so does this one. Slavery to sin is both similar and vastly different to slavery to God. It is similar in that both forms of slavery involve a wholehearted commitment and absolute obedience to our master. In the same way that we used to serve sin with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so now we owe our heart, soul, mind, and strength to God in its totality. But the two slaveries are vastly different in terms of the ends to which each slavery leads. Slavery to sin leads to ever-increasing impurity and lawlessness. Slavery to sin is never static, It's always deepening. It's always expanding. It's always grasping for more. Sin is insatiable. It operates on the principle of addiction. It doesn't matter if you're talking about lust or greed or food or alcohol or drugs or the applause of the crowd or pats on the back. It never satisfies. Rather, you will keep digging deeper and deeper in order to get that taste of what sin promised you before he yanks it away again. On the other hand, slavery to God is not static either. It leads to an ever-increasing righteousness and sanctification and ever-deepening joy. Get a taste of God and you'll never get enough. Paul then concludes chapter 6 by expounding upon that contrast. Okay, Slavery to sin... And slavery to God, though similar in regards to their demands of absolute obedience, are vastly different in terms of their ends. In fact, Paul says they are so different that slavery to God could just as accurately be called freedom. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this final paragraph, Paul makes two points and then he follows it by a summary. Point number one, Paul says that unbelievers have a kind of freedom, but it's actually bondage. Those who are slaves of sin are free, he says, in regard to righteousness. I mean, think about it. They don't have to go to church. They can sleep in on Sundays. They can go fishing or golfing or whatever it is that they do. They don't have to give tithes and offerings. I mean, after all, we already pay taxes to the government. We don't want to pay taxes to God either. They don't have to conform to puritanical standards of morality and outdated social norms. 
They can eat what they want. They can drink what they want. They can sleep with whomever they want, all without restrictions of a narrow-minded, antiquated morality. They're free in regard to righteousness. And you can hear, you can hear behind all of this, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. But are they free? No, they are not free. For one thing, as Paul established above, the notion of absolute human autonomy is a myth. For another, just look at the result of such quote-unquote freedom. It's shame and death. The shame may not come upon them in this life, but one day when they stand before their maker and judge, when their eyes are open to see reality as it truly is, they will be as Adam and Eve in the sight of God, naked and ashamed before his holy gaze. They will see themselves for what they are, diseased and degraded like peddler monkeys dancing for Satan's entertainment. And then they will suffer the consequence of their supposed freedom and their autonomy. In the day that you eat from it, you will surely die, says God. The death spoken of in verses 21 and 23 are not merely physical death. It is eternal death. It is eternal punishment in hell. This is evident in the fact that it is twice set in parallel with eternal life. Point number two, Christians. Now, who are we talking about? We're talking about those baptized believers in verses 3 and 4. They have a kind of slavery, but it is actually freedom. Their slavery is a life of love and worship and service and fellowship and righteousness and peace and joy. And it leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Are Christians enslaved to God? Yes, are they bound to obey the word of God? Yes. Are there times when their sinful desires come into conflict with the word? Yes. And this will be the subject of the second half of chapter 7. Are there times when the only reason they don't do something that they want to do in their flesh is because God forbids it, and the only reason why they do something that their flesh doesn't want to do is because God commands it? Yes. But does this describe the normal state of the Christian life? No, it does not. For as Paul described earlier in verse 17, Christians are those who have become obedient from the heart. Not from fear, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they've been committed. So on the whole... Bondage to Christ sure feels like freedom. As Jesus himself says, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Slavery to God is the freedom to do what you now, with your change of heart, want to do. What you were made to do and will make you everlastingly happy. That is true freedom. The will and the ability to do what will make you happy in a thousand years. True freedom is not the ability to decide for yourself what is right and wrong. It is not absolute autonomy. True freedom is the ability to do and to be what you were made to do and be. It is the ability to do what will make you eternally and everlastingly, increasingly happy. 
Now, Paul completes this comparison and contrast and concludes the chapter with what is one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Quickly, note three points of contrast in this verse. There's a contrast in terms of the master in the relationship, either sin or God. There's a contrast in the basis of this relationship, either work, earning wages, or grace, receiving a free gift. And finally, there is the result of the relationship, either eternal death or eternal life. He's just summarizing what he's been saying all the way through Romans chapter 6. So I began this morning by expressing some of my frustrations uh, with trying to minister in a consumer culture. The fact of the matter is, I don't want to advertise our church, and I don't want to compete in a consumerist marketplace. And I don't think we should have to. Because I believe that there is an inherent and irresistible attractiveness about the kind of lives described in Romans chapter 6. If what Paul says in Romans 6 is true, if we have truly experienced this death and resurrection with Christ described herein, then we ought to be the freest, happiest, holiest people in Nixa. And those are qualities that cannot be ignored. So if we want to be an evangelistically effective church, we must embrace our slavery to God in order that we may know true freedom and joy and holiness. So as we close this morning, I just want you to soak for a minute in the contrast which Paul has established in this passage between being slaves of sin and being the slave of God. Let that settle upon your heart with a profound discomfort in the realization that we so often try to forge a middle ground where Paul allowed none. You are one or the other. You are either this morning the slave of God or you are the slave of sin. So the question you need to be asking yourself is, whose slave am I? Have I become, verse 17, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which I have been committed? And if the answer is no, or I don't know, then as we close, you need to ask God to change your heart, to set you free from slavery to sin and death, and to hand you over, to deliver you to his gospel and to his son, to be your master and savior and Lord. Ask him, and he will set you free. That's why he has come. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said at the beginning of his ministry, to proclaim freedom to the captives. Are you a captive? I announce to you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ that he is here to set you free. Ask him to change your heart. Say to him, I am your slave. And furthermore, that's all I ever want to be.